It is the best-selling book in history. No volume ever written has been more loved and quoted. And its words, sometimes simple and sometimes mysterious, should always be studied carefully. It is the Bible, the Word of God. Welcome to Bible Answers Live, providing accurate and practical answers to all your Bible questions. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, here's your host from Amazing Facts International, Pastor Doug Batchelor. Welcome listening friends. Would you like to hear an amazing fact? During the famous Battle of New Orleans in 1815, 10,000 trained British soldiers attacked 4,700 American defenders. Andrew Jackson's army, made up of a motley assortment of militia fighters, frontiersmen, slaves, Indians, and even pirates, were outnumbered two to one. Incredibly, they still won a decisive victory. During the bloody battle, the British lost about 2,000 soldiers and the Americans about 330. In addition, over 2,000 were wounded. Sadly, this costly battle turned out to be entirely unnecessary. A peace treaty had been signed between Great Britain and the United States two weeks earlier, but the good news was too slow in reaching across the Atlantic to the battlefield. Few things are sadder than a wasted sacrifice. You know, the Bible teaches us that the greatest sacrifice in history has been wasted by most people. Stay with us, friends. We're going to learn more on this edition of Bible Answers Live. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, accurate and practical answers to your Bible questions. So welcome, listening friends. If you would like to call in with your Bible question, 800-463-7297. That's 800-GOD-SAYS. We're also streaming this on Facebook. If you want to take a peek at what's happening here in the studio in uh, Granite Bay, California, (laughs) we're down in the basement, quite literally, but that's simply the Doug Batchelor Facebook page or the Amazing Facts Facebook page. And I am Doug Batchelor. My name is Jean Ross. Good evening, friends. And as we always do, let's start the program with prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you that we're able to open your word and study together. It's indeed a light to our path, guides us to a clearer and full understanding of your will for our lives. And Lord, we ask your blessing on those who are listening, uh, some who might be in their car, others at home. Uh, those listening on the internet, Lord, and we just ask that you'd guide us all into a clear understanding of the Bible, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Pastor Doug, you spoke about a uh, battle that I guess at first one might think, wow, great victory, you know, against the odds. Uh, the U.S., they were able to defend New Orleans. But really, all of that effort and all the bloodshed at the end of the day was actually in vain because the peace treaty had already been signed. They just didn't know about it. I know. Can you imagine when they did finally hear, parents heard that their kids fought in a battle that was totally unnecessary. It was a great victory. And some argue, well, you know, if we had lost the battle, maybe the British would have taken New Orleans and they were going to try and stop Jefferson from keeping Napoleon's Louisiana Purchase. You know, you could always second guess history. But it still makes you think about how sad a wasted sacrifice is. And friends, you probably know where I'm going with this. The Bible tells us that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. You can read in 2 Corinthians 5:14 and 15, 
For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. You know, twice here it says, Jesus died for all. There are some churches that teach Jesus only died for the elect. But the Bible says he died for whosoever will come to him. Here, twice it says, he died for all. And yet, narrow is the way that leads to life because the sacrifice of Jesus is not being taken advantage of by most of the world. Most of the people who have ever lived, they choose not to follow God. And, and many from the time of Christ to the present, even though they may have heard about Jesus, they still don't believe it or they choose to live selfishly. And it's so sad that he suffered for their sins and they're not going to take advantage of that. And they're going to suffer for their sins too. We just appeal to people that if you only realize that Christ has paid for your sins so you don't need to, but you must accept his sacrifice and don't let it be in vain. And we have a free offer that'll talk about how much he's paid for you and how you can accept that beautiful sacrifice and have the victory in everlasting life. The book that we have this evening is called The High Cost of the Cross, and we'd be happy to send this to anyone who asks. Again, ask for our free offer this evening. It's The High Cost of the Cross. The number to call for that is 800-835-6747. That is our resource phone line. And again, we want to encourage you to ask for our free offer. It's a book entitled The High Cost of the Cross. If you have a Bible-related question, our phone line here in the studio is 800-463-7297. 800-463-7297. Our first caller this evening, we've got uh, Joseph, who is listening from, uh, is that? Uh, Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi, yeah. All right. Well, Joseph, welcome to the program. Uh, hi, good evening. Thank you. And your question? Uh, yes, I'm reading first in chapter 17, the story of Elijah. And in verse 21 and 22, it says, when Elijah prayed for the son of Davido, uh, he said, uh, let this child's soul come into him again. And the next verse it says, the soul of the child came into him again. Does it mean that he possesses a soul that goes somewhere once he dies? Uh, and of this child, the soul came back. Yeah, sorry. Now, so the question is about in First Kings 17.22, when Elijah is staying with his widow and, and she has a son, the son dies. And he's in the upper room and Elijah prays and says the soul of the child came back into him again. The word soul there means that his life just returned. His breath of life came back. He had been dead. And it doesn't mean that there was this conscious ghost that was floating around that somehow re-inhabited the body. So it's just saying his life came back into him again. You know, if you look at the word they translated from the original Hebrew, uh, it's translated as soul, but it's also translated as life 117 times translated as person 29 times, um, the mind 15 times. So the word is used depending upon the context, and I think it's quite clear in the context here that uh, the child was revived, his life came back, and as I said, that does fit in with the meaning of the word means life. Thank you. Appreciate that so much, Joseph. All right. Next caller that we have is uh, Safani listening from uh, South Carolina. Safani, welcome to the program. Hi. Thank you for having me. How are you doing tonight? Doing great. Thanks for calling. Yeah, first I want to thank you for the Bible study that uh, Amazing Facts has. I started it three years ago. I never finished it, and I didn't have anything better to do during the pandemic. So I gathered all my cousins on Zoom, and we finished all 24 books, and we did 
Historical of Prophecy, and it was a blessing. Thank you so much. Oh, praise the Lord. Amen. And that's a great <laughs> encouragement to others out there to take the Amazing Facts Bible Study course. It'll enrich your... It's a good time. Yeah. And your question this evening. I was studying with someone, and my cousin, and he told me that Jesus was the first thing that God created. I don't believe it, but he gave me two Bible verses, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, I believe. It says something about the firstborn of creation, and then Proverbs 8, chapter 22, says something about he is the first thing that was created. How do I explain to him that Jesus is not a creation? I gave him one, uh, John 1, verses 1 to 4. It seems that it's not enough, but he told me that Jesus is a creation. How do I explain that to him? Well, the word firstborn in Hebrew, that was always the most beloved. The firstborn always had a double portion of the Father's blessing. It's not telling us that Jesus was created there because you read in other places, all things, and this is in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, all things that were made were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So if all things were made by Jesus, well, he didn't make himself. He's the creator. Uh, the Bible tells us that he shares with the, the characteristics of the Father. Now, if God is love, in order to be love, of course, if God has always been love, you have to have someone to love. If Jesus was created, then God was not always love. And again, the Bible calls Jesus from everlasting to everlasting, I am God. That's eternity past, eternity present. You know, one of the important definitions of God is he is self-existent. He, he was not created. The problem you have, if Jesus was created, he is not God. He is a creation. He's a creature. Yeah, let me add just a few extra verses to that that I think help. Of course, we know Jesus was the firstborn of Mary, and we know that the firstborn son even all the way back in the Old Testament, was a type of Christ. And when Paul refers to the firstborn, it's talking about the inheritor, the one who is to inherit Jesus coming to this earth, being the firstborn of mankind, is now the inheritor of the kingdom of the earth. He's the, the inheritor of the earth. And we can see this if we compare with a few other verses. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 says, talking about Christ, for whom he also foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So the context there is that Christ is the firstborn amongst the believers. He is the leader. And Colossians 1.15 talks about the firstborn over all creation. So Christ being the firstborn of God receives all creation. It's really talking about the incarnation when Jesus came, took upon himself humanity. Of course, he existed before that. You can find that in the Old Testament. But here in this sense, Jesus taking upon himself humanity is the firstborn. Also firstborn, Pastor Doug, I think we can add, it's not just time. We think of firstborn as a sequence, but it's also firstborn of position and authority. You probably heard the illustration about the first lady as being the president's wife. She's the first lady, not the first woman sequentially to be created, but exactly just first in position and rank. And so likewise, Christ is the first in position and rank. You know, we have a book we can send you, Sofani, and it's called, it's about the Trinity. And that talks about the eternal nature of Jesus. And you just call, we'll send you a free copy. All right, the number again to call for that is just simply go to, uh, or just call 800-835-6747, and you can ask for the book on the Trinity. You can also read that online at the Amazing Facts website. Richard is listening in Montana. Richard, welcome to the program. I have a question. Yeah. Going 
according to First Timothy chapter two, verse eleven and twelve, according to uh, King James version. That's about uh, how how like uh, some uh, churches uh, allow uh, women pastors, and verse eleven and twelve, the same thing about like uh, the woman not to have authority over the man, but to be in silence. I just want I just want to find out what does the Bible really mean and say about that. All right. Good question. Let me read this for friends who may be listening. And it says, let a woman learn in silence. And this again is first Timothy chapter two, verse 11 and 12. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man, but to be in silence. Is Paul saying that a woman is never to speak and that a man cannot learn anything from a woman? No, I don't think that's what he's saying. But is there a distinction in the roles of men and women in the family and in the church? Well, yes, we do see that in the Bible. Uh, You do not see an example in the Bible of women serving in the capacity of pastor, priest, apostle. You do see women in the Bible serving in the capacity of prophetess. If a woman's a prophetess, then obviously God's speaking through them. The Bible tells us about Philip, the evangelist, who has four daughters that could prophesy. I think some of it is cultural in that Paul is talking about where women were sitting in separate places from the men, as they did in, in uh, some of the churches back then. And, and the women were sort of embarrassing their husbands because they were teaching them publicly and disrupting the services. And Paul is saying, you know, tell the woman to be silent. Ask their husbands at home. Let the husband have the role of the, the priest leader in the family. We have a book. We can send you a free copy of that, Richard, and it's called Women in Ministry. And the number to call for that, if you'd like to receive it, is just simply 800-835-6747. And again, we'll be happy to send it to anyone who calls and asks. It's called Woman in Ministry, and I think you'll find it encouraging, uh, especially for women out there. Yes, there is a place that God has for service for men and women in the church, but he does make some distinctions with roles, and uh, I think you'd find that helpful. Deep within the pages of the Bible, stories of great heroes, heroes of great deeds, great love, and great sacrifice. But behind them is another hero, hidden in plain sight amid the shadows. He was there from the beginning, and he'll be there until the end. Discover the golden thread of a Savior woven throughout the entire Bible tapestry. Shadows of Light. Seeing Jesus in all the Bible. Get your copy today by calling 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. You're listening to Bible Answers Live. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. Call us at 1-800-GOD-SAYS. Have you ever skipped a meal? Not a bad idea if you need to watch your waistline. But there's a heavenly food you should never skip, God's Word. Yet, how can you dive in daily when you're so busy? Amazing Facts has you covered, and it's as easy as signing up for our daily devotional and verse of the day, both sent directly to your inbox, ready to bless, inspire, and inform you. To start receiving the Amazing Facts daily devotional and verse of the day, visit AmazingFacts.org and click on Bible Study in the main menu. You'll be glad you did. 
The next caller that we have is uh, Chris, listening from Florida. Chris, welcome to the program. Yes, uh, thank you, pastors. Thank you for taking my call. I, I have a general question. You know, we had a, a stillborn uh, child with my wife um, a few years ago, and I was wondering, what do you think? What happens to uh, the babies uh, which were born but dead? Do they go to heaven, or do they, like the rest of uh, believers and unbelievers, uh, expect? I mean, uh, wait for judgment or and uh, at the, to be resurrected at the second uh, coming of Christ? What do you think? That's a good question, and you know, it's a difficult question. First of all, I'll tell you what I do see in Scripture, is that the children of believing parents. They will be in the resurrection of the just, and I believe angels will take those children and place them in the arms of their parents. The more difficult question is, will every stillborn or aborted child through history of the saved and the lost all be in the resurrection in heaven? And I think it's, it's hard to comprehend that. You know, if someone says, oh, I insist that they will be, well, I'm not going to try and change their mind. There is a verse in the Bible in the book of Job, and Job 3.16, where he says, you know, that I might have been like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light. And he goes on to sort of wish he had not existed. It may be that the aborted or stillborn children of unbelievers may be as though they had not been. They certainly won't be judged because they're not guilty of anything. But I do believe the scripture that promises that the children who die before the age of accountability of believers... And what's that verse in 1 Corinthians 7? It says your children are sanctified by the unbelieving parent. By the believing parent. Or the believing parent, rather, yeah. And then, of course, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 18, talking about the slaughter of the, the little baby boys in Bethlehem, there's a prophecy that's referred to in Matthew two eighteen that says they shall return from the land of the enemy, meaning death. So it's talking about those, those children that were killed. Um, so for a believer, yes, we have hope. We look forward to the resurrection. But that happens at the second coming. The dead in Christ don't precede us to heaven. They're not uh, in a nursery in a holding pattern until the parents come. Right. They come with the parents. Uh, does that help, Chris? I'm sorry, did you mention the First Corinthians 7 and what? Well, let's look that up real quick. The verse I referred to was Matthew chapter 2 and verse 18. I was talking about 1 Corinthians 7 where he says in verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, meaning the believing wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, the believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Speaking of, you know, children before the age of accountability, there's a sanctifying influence that the believing parents have on the children. If you've got a believing parent, even if it's one believing parent and they have children, and if they die before the age of accountability, where then at that point they're responsible for their own sins at the age of accountability. But before that, they are basically covered by the prayers and the, the faith of the believing parent. All right. Thank you for your call. Thanks so much. I hope that helps, Chris. We got uh, Katrina listening from North Dakota. Katrina, welcome to the program. Hello. Hi. How can we help you tonight? I've been discovering the Sabbath the last couple of years, but I have lots of friends and family who aren't Sabbath keepers. Mm -hmm. Without coming across as like judgmental, how do I lovingly tell them about it? Well, you know, you could just say the Lord has shown me something that has been a real blessing. Can I share that with you? And if they're open, 
then you, you share it. And there's, you know, lots of great material you probably run into that can make that very clear. You sure don't want to push because like you said, you know, that, that can, you can be obnoxious and drive people away that way. But there's three things you do for those that you care about and you love to reach them. You try and be a good witness. If they're inf- interested, you share information with them. And then you pray that God will soften their hearts and they're open to the truth, whatever that truth might be that you want to share with them. Amazing Facts has some great material and websites. If you've not seen the website KatrinaSabbathTruth.com, then there's a lot of material there for anyone who wants to know more about that. All right. Again, we want to encourage you to take a look at that website called SabbathTruth.com. And we also do have some resources. If, as Pastor Doug mentioned, people are open to hearing that. We do have our Amazing Facts Study Guide course. One of the presentations deals with the Sabbath. It's called Lost Day of History. We'll be happy to send that to anyone who calls or asks. Or if you'd like, you can take the whole course or share the whole course. There's 27 lessons in all. You can share that with somebody else uh, for free. You can call and ask for that. The number is 800-835-6747. 800-835-6747. Thank you for your call, Katrina. We've got uh, Kate listening from Brooklyn, New York. Kate, welcome to the program. Oh, good evening, pastors. Uh, thank you for answering my uh, question, uh, which is, uh, if Christian is forced to get vaccinated, is it considered as a sin? Because um, if you cannot uh, work, relocate, or even stay at your own home without being vaccinated, um, what are the choices you will have? So if they forcefully vaccinate you, is it a sin? And what shall Christians do? Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. And I've, I've had other people that have asked me, not on the program, but they've asked me privately, you know, what if the government f- discovers a vaccine and they say, look, everybody has to get this vaccine. Uh, there are some schools, a matter of fact, in North America, I think, they're requiring vaccination of kids attending school. Yeah. California public school. Some governments have um, and states have voted that you have to vaccinate your kids for them to go to public school. What do you do? Well, if a person's got a strong moral compunction that there's something morally wrong with that, you know, you need to obey your conscience. Now, if they discover a vaccine and the vaccine's proven to be effective and, and low risk, it's unfortunate. Personally, I'm opposed to the government making those decisions. I think it takes away a certain amount of your freedom. It's kind of like when they say you've got to wear a helmet when you ride a motorcycle, at least in California, but you don't in Texas or some states. And, you know, there's all kinds of arguments about, well, it's my head. (laughs) And someone says, yeah, but it's our taxes paying for your hospital bills. And they go round and round on that one. You just have to, you know, pray that God will give you wisdom that you can make the right decision. Yeah, of course, Pastor Doug, we're not saying that it's that it's wrong to get a vaccine. No. Again, that's a personal decision. I think the concern would come in where a person has been forced and everyone's a little different, so that's where we prayerfully need to pray for guidance. Yeah, yeah, if it's a moral issue, you want to follow what you think is morally right. Appreciate that. Thank you so much, Kate. Hope that helps a little bit. All right, next caller that we have is Richard, listening from Georgetown, Guyana. Uh, Richard, welcome to the program. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, my question tonight is on the about the unjust truth in Luke 16. I would like a little clear explanation as to why his master would have um, commended him for doing unjust things. That's a great question. I actually preached a sermon called A Shrewd Dude, and it's on the unjust servant, or the shrewd servant. Jesus is not commending him for his deception. 
Jesus is commending him because he thought ahead about his future and he made preparation for his future and he built alliances and relationships to preserve him in his future. And he said, look, this unjust servant had enough sense to think I'm going to be unemployed. I need to make friends with my master's creditors. And if I make friends and they'll receive me into their homes because they become accomplices with me in my crime, Jesus is not commending him for his dishonesty. He's just saying, even the wicked think ahead and prepare for their earthly future. Why aren't we thinking ahead and making an arrangement, an alliance, a relationship for our eternal future? That's what he's commending him for, not for his dishonesty, but for thinking ahead. Just to add to that, Pastor Doug, his success was making alliances, building relationships with certain individuals that could help him. And I think the contrast that Jesus is drawing is for the believer we want to think ahead. We want to make sure that we've built a relationship with our only hope of uh, having our debts removed, and that's Jesus Christ. So we come into a saving relationship with Christ, which is our only hope of uh, salvation. Yes. Thank you for your call, Richard. Uh, we've got Catherine listening from Washington State. Catherine, welcome to the program. Yes. Hi, Pastor Doug and Pastor Ross. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I really appreciate your show. I have a question from Judges 11 about Jephthah, when in verse 30 and 31, he made a vow to the Lord that if he would help him conquer the Ammonites, then he would burn the first person coming out of his house to the Lord. And it was his daughter, his only child that came out. And he said, you know, you have brought me to the dust. I cannot, I have made a vow to the Lord and I cannot take it back. And so she goes into the hills for two months and with her friends, and then she comes back, and it says in 39, she returned to her father who did as he had vowed, so she was never married. So I don't know if that means she just didn't get married or if he really did burn her. Yes, all right. Well, let's look at the—it's important to look at verse 31 again. Jephthah doesn't say, whoever comes out of the doors of my house— he says, he says, whatever comes out of the doors of my house. Now, when, when people back then said their house, they meant their land. And they had goats and sheep and cows and oxen and donkeys. And he was going to offer whatever came out first. Now, I used to have goats. And whenever I came home, they came running up to me. They had small ranches back then. They all lived on. He meant whenever I come back victorious, Whatever comes out to me. He wasn't, he's only got one daughter. He has no sons. So why would he deliberately say, yeah, whoever comes out, I'm going to offer as a burnt offering. Uh, the custom back then was that you could consecrate one of your children to the Lord as a Nazarite. This is what Hannah did. She gave Samuel to the Lord. What he did is he gave his daughter to the service of the temple. She did not die. She could never marry and have children. And it proves that because later it says the daughters in Israel would go and bewail the virginity of Jephthah's daughter. As she was alive. They would see her. Hey, thank you. We're going to take a break real quick. Be right back, friends. Don't go away. Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return shortly. What if you could know the future? What would you do? What would you change? To see the future, you must understand the past. Alexander the Great becomes king when he's only 18, but he's a military prodigy. 
150 years in advance, Cyrus had been named. Rome was violent, they were ruthless, they were determined. The gospel writers see his death as a fulfillment of salvation. This intriguing documentary, hosted by Pastor Doug Batchelor, explores the most striking Bible prophecies that have been dramatically fulfilled throughout history, Kingdoms in Time. Get your copy today. Available now on DVD, Blu-ray, or USB. For more information, visit kingdomsintime.com. An international pandemic killing thousands, riots ripping communities apart, a global economic implosion. Many are wondering, is this the end of the world? Few question the military, economic, and technological might of the United States. So if we really are facing the last days, if these worldwide catastrophes are really harbingers of the end, shouldn't we expect the United States to play a key role in the final events of Bible prophecy? The book of Revelation provides unmistakable clues. And to help you understand them, Amazing Facts is releasing America in Bible Prophecy. It's going to take you step by step in identifying the global forces at work in these last days. You might be surprised what the Bible really says. You owe it to yourself to find out. So get yourself a copy of America in Bible Prophecy. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, where every question answered provides a clearer picture of God and His plan to save you. So what are you waiting for? Get practical answers about the good book for a better life today. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's rejoin our hosts for more Bible Answers Live. We are back listening, friends. Bible Answers Live. And again, you can call in with your question. It's 800-463-7297. You want to listen on Facebook. It's Facebook, Doug Batchelor Facebook page or Amazing Facts Facebook page. And you can see what's happening here in the studio. I am Doug Batchelor. My name is John Ross. We've got Patty listening from Spokane, Washington. Patty, welcome to the program. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. And your question tonight. My question is, I don't exactly know where to find it in the Bible. I'm sorry. But um, as a Christian woman, I know that I escape judgment. But I've heard the verse that we will have to make an account to God for every idle word that was said. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's uh, that's actually Matthew 12. I could read it to you real quick. Matthew 12, verse 34. I'll start there. Jesus is talking to the scribes and Pharisees. He says, Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word that men shall speak, they will give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. 
And uh, you could put that together with Ecclesiastes, I think it's chapter 7, where it says, uh, let your words be few <laughs> when you go to the house of the Lord. Yeah, you know, Christians, you know, God will forgive our sins as we repent and confess of them. But Christians, as well as anybody, we need to be careful in our, in our words. And usually our words are flowing from the heart. You've got a friend that loves football. It seems like he's always talking about football. And if you've got a friend that's in love with his new fiance, he's always talking about Mrs. Wonderful. The mouth usually reflects what's in the heart. Right. I, it just, it sounded like judgment to me. Like we're going to be judged for every idle word that we say. And I'm, you know, Jesus is telling us that there is a day of judgment. Paul says, even to the church, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So there's a judgment for everybody. It says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. In the judgment, if we have been walking with the Lord, if we confess and forsake our sins, like right now, if I'm going to be judged for every word that I've spoken and every idle word, I'm in big trouble. But what I do is, you know, I, I continually repent when I say, I've, when I recognize I've said something that's ill-advised, I repent and I ask the Lord. Sometimes I'll say something, I'll say, you know, Doug, that was a very selfish thing to say. And it tells me there's selfishness in my heart. Or I say something and I think, oh, Doug, that was very proud. And then it tells me my heart needs uh, some attention in that area. I think the Lord does want believers to be conscious of what we're saying and that it is something we give an account for. Now, as we, like I said, as we confess and repent of our sins, he covers our sins. So speaking is one of the many sins that Jesus covers. You know what I'm saying? Yes. But we do need to confess and repent as we're aware of things. Right. Okay. Yeah, and it helps. Someone told me once that every day a person speaks enough words to fill a book with 320 pages. And that means you got a lot of books in a year. And over the course of your life, you got just a whole Smithsonian library full of things that you've said. Sometimes I get letters at Amazing Facts because I misspeak. Because I do so many sermons and so much teaching, it's not unusual for me to say something either ill-advised or I misspeak, just a slip of the tongue. There's that verse that says, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. We just need to be aware. Be careful what you say. When you do say, have something worth saying and ask God to forgive us if we slip up. Thanks for your call, Patty. We've got, we get a book. We do. We have Tiny Troublemaker. That's the one I was thinking of. We got a book called Tiny Troublemakers. It talks about our words and we'll be happy to send this to anyone. Uh, the number is 800-835-6747. That is the resource phone line. You can ask for the book called Tiny Troublemakers. And sometimes what we say can cause a lot of trouble. All right, we've got Karen listening from Canada, British Columbia. Karen, you're on the air. Hi, pastors. I'm so glad to talk to you. Likewise. Your uh, ministry is such a blessing to me. It's been for years and certainly has helped me. I could use that book you just talked about. <laughs> um, <laughs> That uh, has been bothering me a bit lately. I seem to be soaring a little bit, and as a Christian, I don't, I don't like that. So I'll probably ask for that. But why I'm calling is I'd like to know or have some advice on how I could reach my sister-in-law who, who feels she's good enough as she is. She's a very nice person, really bubbly personality, smiley, laughing. You know, she's, she doesn't do bad things. She doesn't drink or smoke. But yet she feels good enough. Doesn't feel like she needs Jesus. Yeah, no, she doesn't. I'm not sure what or how to say, because I've not been the best example either. 
you know, over the years. I haven't always been a Christian, so she probably doesn't give me any credit. Does she, well, whether she believes you're a Christian or not, let's just find out. Does she believe that the Bible is true? I think so, yes. Does she know what sin is? Yes. Does she believe she's ever sinned? That's a good one. <laughs> I don't, she's never admitted that. Um, she just, she, she just comes out and says, well, I've, you know, I do things, but I, I know I'm a good person and that's probably all right. But we're not, yeah. The penalty for sin is death. If she does not accept the sacrifice of Jesus, one sin is enough to put anybody in the lake of fire. The Bible says all have fallen short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has sinned. They need to recognize that. That's something you might just ask her and say, you know, we all need Jesus. We've all sinned. Even the small sins are deadly. There's no such thing as little sin. It's an oxymoron. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll give that a try. <laughs> pray for me because she's a toughie. <laughs> Thank you. We'll pray God gives you wisdom. Thanks so much, Karen. And you can ask for that book on The Tiny Troublemaker. It talks about the importance of godly speech for Christians. Uh, we've got Denise listening from Rhode Island. Denise, welcome to the program. Hi, Pastor Ross and um, Pastor Batch. I just love your program. Thank you so much. My uh, question, I was thinking, you know, when we become grafted and we become spiritual Jews, wouldn't it be something that we should do is um, worship on Sabbath instead of going to church on Sunday? Um, What are your thoughts on that? We believe that the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. We're not saved by keeping the law, but believers when they love the Lord, they will want to keep God's commandments. And the Sabbath is one of those commandments God says to remember. It's largely neglected by people in the Christian world today. And there's no question that the seventh day is the Sabbath. I know there's a lot of lovely Christians that love the Lord that go on Sunday, but that's not the biblical day. The biblical day that Jesus went in the early church, they all went on the seventh day of the week. It wasn't until well, a couple hundred years later that they gradually began to keep two days and then they neglected the seventh day. You know, we did mention the study guide that talks about this called the last day of history. And I think, yep, you're right. As Christians, we are the spiritual heirs according to the promises made to Abraham. But there are also responsibilities as spiritual Jews and uh, the Ten Commandments needs to be the guide for our life. And the Ten Commandments, let's talk about the Seventh-day Sabbath. We'll be happy to send the study guide to anyone who asks, or you can go look at both. You can go look at the website. It's called sabbathtruth.com. And it's just filled with all kinds of resources. I think, uh, Denise, you'd really enjoy that. Also, call and ask for the study guide, Lost Day of History. The number is 800-835-6747. And I think you'll find that an encouraging read. Next caller that we have, J.D., listening from Missouri. J.D. from Will Springs. Yes, hello. Uh, hi. Um, hi. Before I get, ask my question, I just want the uh, other lady question reminded me of Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Right. For God shall bring every work into judgment. She said it was referring to judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. That's right. Yeah, my question was Matthew 24, verse 14. It says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. What What does it mean by this gospel of the kingdom? What What kingdom is it referring to? Is it is it the spiritual kingdom? of salvation or is it the second coming or is it both or 
what? Well, in Matthew chapter, well, in the book of Matthew, he speaks more about the kingdom than any other of the gospel books. Jesus is always talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. In his parables, he uses that phrase. He's talking about the gospel message that he came to bring. And so it would be his teaching, the entire essence of the teaching of the Messiah. This gospel, this good news is going to be preached in all the world and of the Bible, then the end will come. It doesn't say everyone will believe. It says it's preached as a witness and then the end comes. Okay. All right. Thank you. And we're almost there. You know, this is exciting because uh, Pastor Ross and I got on a phone call last night with Amazing Facts missionaries. We had over 30 different sites that called in from around the world and there were people, well, you know, Indonesia and India and Africa and everywhere, Europe they called in, we were talking about the gospel work, and this we're just one ministry, amazing facts. There's hundreds of Christian ministries that are in all different parts of the world right now. Now through the internet and through satellite, boy, the gospel is going everywhere. Absolutely, thank you for your call, JD. We've got Tony listening in uh, Kentucky. Tony, welcome to the program. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, sir. My question tonight is about divorce and remarriage, and I guess specifically, we know that the Bible talks about the situations where it's okay for someone to get a divorce, but in those same verses, it doesn't really seem to talk about remarriage. So my question is, is there any biblical uh, proof that it is okay for a Christian or for anybody to get remarried after a divorce, save for the cause of the spouse dying or an unbelieving? Well, I guess just for the spouse dying. Yeah, well, the reason for the Bible defining what is acceptable cause for divorce, if you have any acceptable cause for divorce, you are automatically eligible to remarry. It's those who do not have an acceptable cause for divorce that are not uh, eligible to remarry. Of course, you don't have to remarry. You have the right to remarry. God is not requiring, you know, if, if you've got a spouse that has committed adultery and abandoned you, then you can divorce that person. They violated, they violated the covenant, and then you have the right to marry again with an innocent conscience. Does that help a little bit? It does, and I guess that, that would convince me, but I know of another person I talked to who says that uh, he insists upon this, that the, the divorce is okay, but that there is no text that anybody could use to defend that that same person who divorced correctly because they were cheated on, then getting remarried. Is there a biblical text that, that does it, or would it be more like how you explained it, where it's kind of uh, based on, it's kind of an implicit thing? Uh, where is it, Pastor Ross, in Romans, where Paul said that if a woman's husband dies, she's freed from that obligation? And in being freed from that, it's understood by the context. That means she's free to remarry. So at least if someone is widowed, they're free to remarry. Abraham's Sarah died. He remarried Keturah and he was free to do that. I know there are probably other examples in the Bible of, oh yeah, who was it that Ezekiel's wife died? I think Hosea's wife died. Yeah, and then you can remarry. Divorce, legitimate divorce, is the same as if your spouse dies and you're widowed. You can remarry. Yeah, absolutely. You know, pass it up my computer um, search engine just... It must be an Apple. Re ...redid something, so I can't search. Pastor Ross and I go back and forth. <laughs> I use PC and he uses Apple, so... I, I had a search option here that just knocked me out of where I'm supposed to be, so... <laughs> well, Paul talks about in Romans where, I think it's in Romans, he says that if a... Yeah, it is. ...a woman's husband dies, she's freed from the law of her husband, and that might be Romans 7. 
Yeah, here it is. Romans 7, 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. She's no adulteress, though she remarries again. Same thing with legitimate divorce as with death. That's the verse I was looking for. Thank you, Tony. I hope that helps. And we have a book we can offer on divorce, marriage. We do. It's called uh, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. And the number to call for that is 800-835-6747. Again, 800-835-6747. Ask for the marriage, divorce, and remarriage. All right, Pastor, I think I've got my uh, Bible software up and running here, so we'll see how that works. You're listening to Bible Answers Live. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. Call us at 1-800-GOD-SAYS. Do you feel as though your world is spiraling out of control? Or perhaps new life challenges are frightening you more than they should? Are you sinking while you're thinking? Excessive worry can consume you eating you from the inside out, resulting in sickness, insomnia, and paralyzing fear. It can also damage relationships, ruin opportunities, and yes, diminish your witness for the gospel. Worry affects everybody differently, but it's all driven by fear. So how can you overcome a world full of reasons to be anxious? I'd like to recommend for you my new book, Finding Peace in a World of Worry. You'll discover a lifeline to victory, a place where you can cast your cares upon Christ and experience a serenity that isn't subject to your circumstances. Get your copy of Pastor Doug's Finding Peace in a World of Worry today. Call 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. We've got Lotus listening from San Bernardino. Lotus, welcome to the program. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Yeah, make sure your radio's down in the background and your question tonight. Yes, I'd like to know uh, several pastors that uh, to try to define First John five thirteen versus hope to be saved or do they know that they're saved? Well, let's read this for our friends that are driving down the road. These and this is First John five thirteen. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you might know that you have eternal life and that you might continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Is that the verse you wanted? Yes, yes. And, uh, and the, the John 3.16, well, it says everlasting. So I've heard uh, a pastor say that, well, I hope to be saved. I, to know to, to be saved is what is more solid to me than hope. It is more solid. Now, the Bible, the apostles use both words. Even Paul says he calls the second coming the blessed hope. And then you've got John who says, I know. Uh, One place Paul says, I do not count myself to have apprehended or be perfect. And then later Paul says, I know in whom I believe and I am persuaded that he is able. So it's both a confidence and a hope. It's wonderful to say we, we know, but even in that verse we just read there where he says, you know, and that you may continue to believe. Now, the very fact that John says in that verse, verse five, that you may continue to believe, he's basically saying, I'm sorry, it's uh, verse 13. That means that it's possible for a person not to continue. 
Otherwise, he wouldn't say that. So he's saying you can know you have eternal life. And as long as you continue to believe. Yeah, it's a confidence we have. You know, I illustrate it this way, Lotus. I'm married to Karen and she's married to me. And we made a covenant and I love her. I don't ever worry about coming home and finding her with another man. We made a covenant. I know her. I love her. I trust her. And I have confidence on our relationship. She doesn't ever worry about me. So where you have faith and love, you have a confidence about your relationship. Now, does that mean that Karen and I are not free to violate that uh, covenant? No, we still have that freedom. But we have a love and a confidence, so that's not a concern. It's the same thing in our relationship with the Lord. As we love Jesus and we walk with him, we are confident about our salvation. All right. Well, thanks for your call, Lotus, again. We do have a book called Can a Saved Man Choose to Be Lost? And it gets right into that. Yes. And I have another book we don't often give, and it's called Assurance. Yeah. Justification Made Simple. Yes. And so if you want to know about the assurance, we believe in that. The number to call is 800-835-6747. You can ask for two books, uh, Can a Saved Man Choose to Be Lost? and Assurance, Justification Made Simple. And I think you'll find those both uh, very enlightening as you study. Uh, Jonathan is listening in Canada. Jonathan, welcome to the program. Hello, pastors. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. So my question is, um, I've been given a formula uh, between Daniel 9, uh, and it, it goes through the 70 years of the captivity of Israel. And the uh, the person who gave it to me drew up a conclusion of uh, the seven-year tribulation and the more popular one, I believe it's Revelation 13. Now, I'm, I'm not fully convinced in a seven-year tribulation. Where does the formula for the biblical three and a half years come from? You're probably talking about there's, there's two or three different interpretations on Daniel 9. The two most popular are what you call the historist view, which is what Pastor Austin, I believe, and it's actually what all the Protestant reformers believed. And then you've got the futurist view. The futurist view is a fairly new interpretation. That's the one that was made popular by the Schofield Bible and Hal Lindsey, and then gradually just took off like wildfire through a number of charismatic churches so that most evangelical Christians now believe that the seven years in Daniel chapter 9, the last seven years, is floating. It's like a, a hovering time period that's going to be the time of trouble at the end. It's a very different interpretation than the historist view. The historists take that last week and they keep it part. In other words, it's the whole 70 weeks, the 490 years is together. And it reaches from the command to restore and build Jerusalem. You've got 490 years up until the stoning of Stephen when the Supreme Court of the Jewish nation plugged their ears and rejected the presentation of the gospel. Then the gospel went to the Gentiles in the next chapter. You have two different views of that. Can we send you a study on that? Because it's, it's hard to give all those verses and chapters in just a few minutes. Actually, yes, please. That would help a lot. I could use that to further, I guess you'd say, prophesizing to my friends. Well, when you see this, I tell you, no prophecy in the Bible got me more excited than Daniel chapter 9 because it is so clear when you look at it. And I think the interpretation you're going to see is I've looked at them all. And this, to me, is just light years ahead of some of the speculation I've seen. It really makes sense. I think you're referring, Pastor Doug, to that study called Right on Time. Yes. That deals with Daniel chapter 9. 
in the various time prophecies. Again, we'll be happy to send this to anyone who calls and asks. The number is 800-835-6747. And you can ask for the study guide. It's called Right on Time. And we'll send it out to anyone who calls. Uh, we've got Chad listening from Michigan. Chad, welcome to the program. Hey, how are you guys doing? Great. Um, my my question uh, is regarding the word Sheol. And that word is oftentimes translated in English, hell. Um, and I've heard it said that, well, that's just referencing the grave. But in doing a little digging, there seems to be a different Hebrew word for grave, and Sheol seems to be kind of specific, like to the concept of the realm of the dead. And in Isaiah 14, verses 9 through 11, you see that imagery, this place of Sheol, and these spirits coming up from Sheol to greet to greet these, um, these wicked, um, oppressive leaders. And so, um, so I, I guess... I, I can understand it somewhat uh, poetically, but I guess it, it comes into question, like, what what if the people who were writing it believed in this term as such? And how like, how do we kind of understand it um, when, when it seems to be this was the understanding that there was this realm of the dead uh, where everybody went when they died? Let me read this for our friends. We've got a lot of listeners driving down the road. So I always like to when you reference a verse, I want to read it so they know what we're talking about. In Isaiah chapter 14, I'll start with verse nine. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It is raised up from their thrones and all the kings of the nations. They shall speak and say to you, have you also become weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol and your, the sound of your stringed instruments. The maggot is spread under you and the worms cover you. And so, yeah, Isaiah writes with a lot of poetry. You are right about that. And he's basically describing this ruler who is going to end up being terribly humiliated. And the next verse is, I think Pastor Ross is going to say that. Well, you know, I just, now that I got my Bible program up and running, Pastor Doug, I, I did a word search on the word hell there. It's kind of an interesting, just the Hebrew. It is translated into English as grave, as pit, as hell, as sheol. The same word, just used in different verses and different contexts. So you could say pit, the pit is from beneath thee. Uh, the actual translation. So it's not, you know, it's not this place of, of eternal torment that people think about. It's talking about the grave in different forms, in a, in a symbolic sense or a poetic sense here. And one reason we know this too, it's, it's the same place King David went. And we know he's saved. It talks about, you will not suffer my soul to remain in Sheol. And there it's uh, Psalms 49 actually uses the word grave. Same same Hebrew word. So, hey, thank you so much, Chad. Oh, I wish we could take more time. We will send you a free study guide on Are the Dead Really Dead? You may have seen that. Also have a website called deathtruth.com. You'll enjoy. Listening, friends, we've just got a few seconds left in this part of our broadcast. We always have some great closing announcements. I'd like to thank you for tuning in. Sorry if we did not get to you, June and Kyle and Jessica, Ed. We're going to be here next week, God willing. Keep studying the Word during the pandemic. Help us stay on the air, friends. Amazingfacts.org. Click donate. We sure appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts International, a faith-based ministry located in Granite Bay, California. The Bible tells us that salvation, of course, emanates from God. 
So we need to know something about God to rightly understand and embrace salvation. Yet in the church today, there's a great deal of confusion about the nature of God. The Bible says God is one God, but is he three persons? Is Jesus also eternal God? Because Jesus is the Son of God, does that mean there was a time when he did not exist or he was brought into existence? Is the Holy Spirit a person? Or is he just the force and the energy that God uses to communicate? You know, I thought this was so important, I really felt led of the Lord to write a book on the subject called Exploring the Trinity, One God or Three. In this book, we answer those very important questions. We talk about the history of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, as well as the history of the Holy Spirit in the church and how it has been much debated. This is something we really need to understand because Jesus said eternal life comes from knowing God. Journey back through time to the center of the universe. Discover how a perfect angel transformed into Satan, the arch-villain. The birth of evil, a rebellion in heaven, a mutiny that moved to earth. Behold the creation of a beautiful new planet and the first humans. Witness the temptation in evil. Discover God's amazing plan to save his children. This is a story that involves every life on earth. Every life. The Cosmic Conflict. If God is good, if God is all-powerful, if God is love, then what went wrong? In six days, God created the heavens and the earth. For thousands of years, man has worshipped God on the seventh day of the week. Now, each week, millions of people worship on the first day. What happened? Why did God create a day of rest? Does it really matter what day we worship? Who is behind this great shift? Discover the truth behind God's law and how it was changed. Visit SabbathTruth.com. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org. Tune in next time for more Bible Answers Live. Honest and accurate answers to your Bible questions.